Yes. All right. How many of y'all have been at a party, a concert, a camp, event, some kind where everything was just so, so perfect? Everything was going amazing, and you just never wanted it to end. Maybe a few people, yeah. Now, I mean, even as an introvert, I have to admit that I've been to some some fun parties where, man, I could have had that thing going for another solid five, ten minutes and been thoroughly just enjoying myself. But have you ever been in the opposite situation where you tried to do something specifically for a person or a group and it was meant to honor them, but instead it had a, a very opposite effect. In fact, they may have been a little offended when you were done. One of the jobs I had before I became a computer programmer was I worked in the IT department for a local school district, H-E-B-I-S-D. And I was the campus tech at a school called Bedford Junior High. And through that, and a random set of circumstances, many years later, I found myself at a teacher's conference that was there to promote the accessibility of STEM subjects in school. And I was promoting a, a device called a Raspberry, a Raspberry Pi, a device I was somewhat heavily involved with at the time. Uh, and while I was there, I was talking to, with one of these, these teachers, and they ex told me the story where they're, they're just shocked at the end of it. And they had done something where they had meant to be beneficial to someone, and it just blew up completely in their face. You see, at her school, they had a monthly get-together for STEM subjects, where everyone would come together, they'd talk about computers and circuits and 3D printers and all this cool programming stuff. And she noticed that not many girls came to these events. And she said, well, it can't be that the girls at my school aren't interested in circuits and programmings and 3D printers and all that cool stuff. It must be that we aren't designing this to be accessible to them. So she said, for the next event, I am going to cater this to girls. And she put up posters all over the school about how if you just come, we're going to recognize you. You're going to be the person of honor. There's going to be raffles for girls. Uh, you're going to get gift bags. It's going to be an awesome time for the ladies. But when the event came, she was somewhat surprised because not only did fewer girls come than ever, there are also much fewer boys. And it turned out that the boys didn't come because they felt like this event wasn't for them that this was specifically a girl event, and the girls didn't come because they felt like they were going to be the subject of unwanted adoration and praise. As we open our passage tonight in Matthew 14, uh, we're going to be in verse 22, reading through the end of Matthew 14. We see that Jesus is in a somewhat similar situation where he is receiving unwelcomed and even inappropriate adoration. I know that sounds weird, but we're going to cover what I mean by that as we read through our passage and go through the lesson. So let's read our passage for tonight. It is Matthew 14, starting in verse 22. Immediately he, that's Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. 
But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got in the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at at, uh, Genesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. I've titled tonight's lesson simply, Jesus the compassionate king. Thank you. Now, in this life, I recognize that there are several things I have a good talent for. Being creative with titles isn't one of them. Uh, when, when I set up computers and I, I'm, it says, okay, you got to name this computer, I go, kid's computer. Uh, and I'm, I'm amazed at other people. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I call this one Gandalf because it's, uh, it's my firewall and none shall pass. I'm like, well, Great, that's clever. You are a clever man. Uh, but can, can, you guess, uh, can you guess what kids' computer is for in my house? Any guesses at all? What do you think, Abby? Aiden probably showed it to you uh, a lot. It is, it's for the kids' computer. Uh, the same thing goes for, for lessons. I'm impressed when people come up with these really clever lessons titles. Uh, but I tend to be very descriptive with my lesson titles. So who can guess what tonight's going to be about? What do you think? Jesus, the compassionate king. That's right. Tonight's passage shows four ways that Jesus is both king and compassionate. Now, I want to look at our first two verses again. It says, immediately he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. So I remember last week, Brandon went over the feeding of the 5,000, and he touched on the fact that after Jesus had heard about the death of John the Baptist, uh, he took the disciples and they withdrew to somewhere desolate to be by themselves. Uh, but then what happened? Obviously, they didn't be by themselves. What happened? You remember? Yes, sir. Um, uh, a massive crowd of people followed him. That's right. Uh, a massive crowd of people followed him. Jesus found himself besieged by the crowds. And from the Gospel of Luke, we know that this desolate place that Jesus went to was a region... Uh, near Vestavia Julius. Uh, it's hard to see. It is the top right-hand white box there. Uh, Vestavia Julius. We also know that this is all taking place right after the 12 disciples returned from their missionary journey that Jesus had sent them on. That's the one where he sent them in uh, pairs of two. So they come back from their mission trip, and Jesus leaves Capernaum with them, and the people hear about his departure. And they managed to run all around the north end of the, the Sea of Galilee there. Like you can see Capernaum, it's almost at the very tip top of the Sea of Galilee. You move just a little bit to the left, there's Capernaum. So they managed to go all across the north end. They had to go two miles up the Jordan River to a ford where they can cross. And then if they can run in a straight line from that ford, they ran another two to three miles to get to Bethsaida Julius. And they get there ahead of Jesus because they're so excited uh, to see him. And this moves Jesus. 
You know, even if the people there are coming not out of a heart of true devotion, but just out of a heart of raw, physical need for healing, something that we only need in this world because of the, the fact the world groans under the corrupting weight of sin, Jesus is moved to compassion, healing them all day until evening comes when he miraculously feeds them. And this creates the situation where Jesus began to receive this unwanted adoration. And again, I know that's a sense that doesn't make sense. We're going to talk about it in just a second here. Jesus is king. He's God. If the people are worshiping him, how can it be unwanted or inappropriate or wrong? Well, it's because they were not worshiping him as Messiah, but instead they were trying to tempt him to sin the same way that Satan did in the wilderness when he tempted him. Uh, we know this from a parallel account of this passage found in John chapter 6 and verses 14 and 15, when the people see how many baskets of food are left over, they say, this is indeed the prophet who has come to the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When the people proclaimed Jesus to be the prophet, uh, this was a reference to Deuteronomy uh, 8, or 18.15, where Moses promised the people that God would raise up for them a prophet uh, that they were to listen to. And the response really does away with anyone who tries to say that the feeding of the 5,000 was just everyone having a big kumbaya moment where they said, oh, here, share my food. Oh, here, share my food. Uh, that's not what happened. After seeing Jesus overabundantly meet their needs in terms of being fed, the people are ready to forcibly usher in his messianic kingdom. Uh, that's not a response you have just because everyone shared their food. The people there fully recognized that Jesus was the promised Messiah precisely because there is no way for the people to be fed with food on hand. They were making a clear connection between the fact that they received manna in the wilderness under Moses with the fact that Jesus had fed them miraculously here on uh, the side of the mountain. And, and me saying that they were excited about this is kind of an understatement. Uh, we're told that they're whipped into a frenzy. They're ready to, to grab a hold of him and forcibly put him on a throne. And in Jesus' response, we see the first instance of him being the compassionate king. Uh, he's compassionate in his response to the crowd's demand for him to be a political king. And as a king, he demonstrates that he has authority over how he is going to be worshipped. Look at these first two verses and notice how Jesus responds to their desire to make him the political Messiah. He first makes the disciples leave and then he gets the crowds to disperse. And it's interesting that he makes the disciples leave, leave first because the way it's worded, it's a very strong wording. It's not that he sent them on ahead of him. It's not that he said, oh, you just go, go ahead of me. You, you do this first. Uh, it says that he had to make them leave and it kind of has this implication that maybe disciples were at the forefront of those trying to make Jesus have this political kingdom. And it is with only by having the disciples leave that Jesus could calm the rest of the crowds down. But regardless of if that was why Jesus made the disciples leave first, or if there's some other reason, we see that Jesus gives a compassionate response to the people. He dismisses them over this period of time where presumably he's quelling down their improper worship. And just compare how we see Jesus deal with the people here in Matthew 14, trying to force him into ruling over them, versus how Jesus responds to Satan when Satan 
tempts Jesus to have authority over all the kingdoms of the earth. In Matthew 4, verses 8 through 10, we read, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, as Satan says to Jesus, All these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship your Lord, your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus could have rebuked the people here. He could have rebuked the disciples if they were the ringleaders too. Uh, he could have given them a very stern reprimand. He could have called them a brood of hypocrites for wanting a political kingdom, but not being willing to uh, submit to his moral authority. But he doesn't do that. He responds to them with compassion. We also see Jesus demonstrating that as the king, he's the one who has authority over how he's worshipped. Now, three times now, I've mentioned that the way the people were worshiping him was either unwanted adoration or improper worship. And I want to clarify what I mean by that. Because it's a hard thing to think about. We know that the chief end of man is to glorify God. We also know that when Jesus had his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, everyone was crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees were mad about this and said, hey, quiet them down. And do you remember Jesus' response? Anyone? Something about some rocks? You're smiling. Do you know? No. no? no. If you silence them, even the rocks will cry out. Yeah, he says, even if you silence them, even the rocks will cry out. It is right and it's proper that people worship Jesus in the face of overwhelming evidence of his divinity. The issue that we see here is that rather than praising God that his will is being accomplished in the world, they're trying to set up their own Messiah. And they're trying to make Jesus conform to their image of who the Messiah should be, rather than worshiping him as the true Messiah. And Jesus' emphatic yet compassionate response is to say, no, you don't get to decide what counts as appropriate worship. And if this seems like an odd concept to you, I want you to look at Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. What's going on here in Leviticus is that God has spent uh, six chapters going over the precise commandments on how to give burnt offering, grain offerings, sin offerings, peace offerings, and guilt offerings. He's given precise instructions on how the priests are to perform these, uh, their duties, and what portions of each offering is to be theirs. Then they have an eight-day-long ceremony where Aaron and his sons are consecrated so that they can serve in the presence of God. And, and there's this amazing culmination of this eight-day-long ceremony where the, the Aaron comes and he offers up a sin offering for himself and his sons. And as he offers it, the glory of God shines from the tabernacle, and fire comes from the presence of God and consumes Aaron's sacrifice. It was an amazing, awe-inspiring demonstration of God's glory. And the very next thing we're told about in chapter 10 is that two of Aaron's sons, uh, Nadab and Abihu, decide that they were going to worship God in a way that he hadn't commanded them to worship him. Reading from Leviticus 10 verse 1, it says, now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took a censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. 
and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. Now there's there's a lot of speculation about what precisely was wrong with the sacrifice or with the incense of uh, Nadab and Abihu. Some people think maybe they took the coal from some other location than the altar like they were supposed to. Uh, maybe, maybe they were doing this at the wrong time of day. There's even some speculation that maybe they were a bit drunk. Uh, and God's reprimand later on to, to Aaron when he's saying, hey, this is how you need to be doing things. He specifically mentions that when you come before me to serve, don't be drinking wine. Don't be having strong drinks. So there's some implication that maybe, maybe uh, his sons had done that very thing. But I want you to consider God's statement there at the end. He says, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. God's saying that the root issue was that by trying to make up their own way to worship God, they were failing to give him glory and honor. They were failing to glorify him even while claiming to worship him. I mean, you and I, we don't get to decide what's true and proper worship before God. I, I, can't, I can't say, you know what, true and proper worship is me hitting my brother. But that doesn't fly. <laughs> yeah, I, I see you over there. I'm watching you, Ben. That's not going to fly. That's not how it works. God is the one who gets to say what is true and proper worship. We see a second way Jesus demonstrates his compassion and authority as king in this next section. Uh, And that's the one where the disciples are told to go to the other side. And and there is some contention about what does this even mean when Jesus says, go to the other side? Because in John's account, we're told that the disciples were sent down to the sea and started across to Capernaum. But then in Mark's account, it says that Jesus told them to go to the other side to Bethsaida. It seems like a contradiction. Do you think it's a contradiction? What was that? Say it loud. No. No. Very good. Thank you. No, it's not a contradiction. It's not a contradiction. Uh, what it is, is a lack of understanding of the geography of the day. Not from the Bible's perspective, from our perspective. When we go, oh, well, the Bible's saying two different things, it's just because we're not understanding the geography of the day. Uh, from the gospel accounts, we're told that Philip, Andrew, and Peter all came from Bethsaida in Galilee. And in Mark 1, we're told that Jesus enters the synagogue in Capernaum. He teaches there. When he's done, he exits and immediately enters the house of Andrew and Simon. And that's from Mark 1.29. So he leaves Capernaum and somehow immediately enters the house in Bethsaida. Uh, And based on these passages, there's really just two possibilities of what's actually going on here in terms of geography of the day. I know, last week I was talking, or two weeks ago whenever I taught last, I was talking history and now I'm doing geography. You guys just never know what's coming next. You just don't. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not. You're going to see what I do next. I'm going to do it in this this very message, in fact. You're going to love it. You're not going to love it. Uh, But there's there's only two possibilities here of what's going on, and neither one of them is that the Bible has a mistake in it. The first possibility is that you had Bethsaida on the western side of the Jordan River, and yeah, thank you for bringing this up. So you had, the first possibility is you had Bethsaida on the western side of the Jordan River. And it sprawled across the north end of the Sea of Galilee. It went over the Jordan River. And it went around Capernaum 
such that you had Bethsaida Galilee on the eastern side as well, this one sprawling city. If, if that seems like a stretch to you, I want to point you to this map of the city of Fort Worth. Uh, I know this is hard to see. Oh, man, I hate the way the city of Fort Worth is laid out. But guys, uh, the city of Fort Worth completely surrounds like 10 different cities. Uh, it, it surrounds Benbrook, Forest Hill, Edgecliff, Village, White Settlement, River Oak, Saginaw, Hazlitt, and Everman. And that's just, that's leaving some out. And that's not even counting all the cities that it kind of brushes up against. I mean, Fort Worth, it, it practically touches Dallas. It's insane. I can't, I can't stand Fort Worth. But we get this idea, don't we? That, that people in the past, they all lived in little mud huts, banging rocks and grunting at each other. <laughs> we just think that people in the past were stupid. And that's not the case. Uh, in this time, people lived in large and very impressive cities. Uh, I mean, the Roman aqueducts of the day, they were feats of engineering, just marvels. There's no reason to think that a sprawling city couldn't have existed in this day and age. Uh, but even if it didn't, uh, there's a second possibility. And that's what like, this map shows, that there are two cities or regions that were both referred to as Bethsaida. You had Bethsaida Julius, west of the Jordan, and then you had a second suburb of Capernaum named Bethsaida Galilee. So those are the two possibilities. Um, it really doesn't matter which one it is, but the point is the Bible's not wrong. When the Bible says they were going to Capernaum and then they were going to Bethsaida, it's the same difference. It's like me saying, oh, hey, I'm going to go to Fort Worth to get home. Or me saying, hey, I'm going to go to Harvest Ridge, a small suburb on the outskirts of Fort Worth. Both of them are true and accurate. So here we find the disciples making what should have been a very simple trip from Bethsaida Julius to Bethsaida Galilee or Capernaum. And that's going to be the next one, Drew. Uh, click one more time. Yeah, they're just making a short trip. This should have been uh, a fairly easy journey of about four to five miles. Uh, from the passage, based on verse, uh, like verse 23, we see that Jesus is alone when evening comes. The disciples were dismissed before this, and then Jesus had to dismiss the crowd. So it's probable that they left before sundown. And it's a reasonable assumption that they thought they were going to get to their destination prior to the sunset. But something goes wrong. We're told the disciples had been blown a long way from land with a ship being beaten by the waves. Uh, and this makes sense considering the time of the year they are in. In Mark's account of the feeding of the 5,000, we're told that Jesus instructs the people to sit down on the green grass. Uh, so we know that this takes place during the rainy season, season when the grass would have been luscious and green instead of Texas right now when the grass is dead and brown and ready to catch fire. <laughs> this was a time of year when storms were very common on the Sea of Galilee. Now, I want you to have an idea of the magnitude of what the disciples were facing here. Uh, when I was a young teenager, my dad and I were out water skiing up in northeastern Arkansas on my granddaddy's uh, fishing boat. Very lightweight boat. Uh, you know, as we got older, only two of us could go out on a time water ski, but it had a powerful enough engine such that someone could be driving and someone could be pulled along back. And as we're, we're out there having fun, we suddenly hear the ominous sound of thunder off in the distance. 
and we knew we needed to get back to the boat ramp and get, uh, get the boat loaded up and get into our vehicle before lightning started uh, to go off around us as we were on the lake. But we had an issue. As we're heading back to the ramp, our engine dies. My, my granddad, who was getting older at this time, he wasn't taking good care of his boat anymore. And so the engine just dies on us. Um, now, we did have some paddle on boards, but even though we were near the shore, we couldn't get to the shore because the wind was blowing against us. And, and now, obviously, I'm okay. I mean, <laughs> I'm right here. Mom, I suddenly realized you listened to this. You may not know this story. I'm fine. Uh, we made it back safely. <laughs> but it was hard to get to the shore. And if it hadn't been for a little fishing trolley or a trolling motor that my granddad had that run off a battery, we wouldn't have been able to make it to the shore. Uh, it had just enough power in it to help us get there. And once we were on the shore, we could hold on to the anchor line and we, we walked along the shoreline. And, and, you know, my dad had his paddle and he'd keep it off from hitting the, the actual shore. And I walked along and we eventually made it to the boat dock. And, you know, I, I'd like to really drum this story up and say, you know, rain was beating down on me while I was pulling this boat behind me. I had lightning flashing off. I thought I was going to die. No. Uh, it, honestly, it took us some time. It was an inconvenience, but we got back. We were in the car before, the, you know, before rain really started falling on us. Uh, and if I'm really brutally honest, that wind that kept us from the shore was, you know, like a stiff breeze. <laughs> it wasn't hard at all, guys. Uh, but just that stiff breeze was enough to keep us from the shore. Now, contrast that to what the disciples faced. This is a picture of uh, the Sea of Galilee, as seen from a region called Gamla. And this is the north end of the Sea of Galilee. Up there at the tip, the very right-hand most part of it, this is where the River Jordan comes into it. So just a little bit beyond that, you have Capernaum. And a little bit beyond that, you're going to have Bethsaida Galilee. And up close to us, kind of right there between those two valley lines, that's where Bethsaida Julius kind of approximately was. And I want you to notice something about this photo. Uh, this photo is about 25 miles inward from Mediterranean Sea, plus the distance of, you know, the Sea of Galilee, so like 33 miles. Uh, I also want you to notice that what you have right there is hills all around the Sea of Galilee. And if you've ever been on mountains, you know that there's a windward side and a leeward side. And we're now on the leeward side. It's very dry air. That's why you get deserts beyond it. Like you'll have the very lush side on the windward side, but then past it, you're going to have a leeward dry side. But it also creates a lot of fast-moving wind as that wind comes down the mountainside. So it was no stiff breeze the disciples were facing. The wind came up quick off the, off the Mediterranean, and it just plunged down into this valley, and it hit them hard. This was a strong prevailing wind that 12 grown men were not able to make headway against. And keep in mind, we know that at least four of the disciples were fishermen. Like the Bible comes out and says that very clearly, at least four of them. It's possible that three more of them, so seven in total, were also fishermen. Uh, there's less evidence for those last three. Uh, but despite this, 12 grown men, possibly seven of whom made their living on this sea, were completely being overwhelmed by the wind that had come up against them. 
to the point that it was now the fourth watch, as the Bible says. And this is sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So they had been up all night long fighting against this wind. And we're told that when Jesus was done praying, he sees them struggling out on the ocean, or on the sea, excuse me. I love so much what Mark's account of this passage tells us in Mark 6.48. It says, And Jesus saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. If I stop there, you go, wow, that's incredible. Jesus saw them and he came to them. He saw that they were struggling. But if you keep reading, this is the part I love. If you keep reading, it says, and he meant to pass them by. He sees that they're struggling, and his response is to just pass right by them. And I love it so much because have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that you are struggling against a strong headwind, against teachers that don't like you, against friends that are ostracizing you, against just a society that hates you for being a Christian, and you feel like you're struggling, but God isn't there. You feel like you've been passed by. I mean, if we're honest, I know that I felt that way sometimes. It's a wrong view. But I, I felt like in the midst of my struggles, I've been passed by. And the reason I love this passage is because we see that Jesus absolutely saw their struggle. And Jesus wasn't being cruel by passing them by. He wasn't being capricious. He saw that there was no need for him to make a physical intervention in their struggles. God has not promised us a life of peace and comfort for following him. And this is the second way, amazingly, that this passage demonstrates that Christ is compassionate. And it demonstrates his authority as king. As, as Christ has authority over the circumstances we face, face, and in his compassion, he was not far off of them. I, I want you to think about this. I want you to think hard. If Jesus just intended... Yeah, go ahead. So, there we go. If Jesus just intended to pass by them completely, which we know he did, the Bible tells us that. Like, we don't have to guess. The Bible says Jesus' intention was to pass them by. Did Jesus have to walk across the lake to do that? No, he didn't. Do you think Jesus was just being kind of lazy? Like, oh man, I do not want to walk two miles up at that ford. You know what? I'm just going to use some of my supernatural divine power, and I'm going to take a quick stroll across the lake. Do you think that was Jesus' heart motivation? I don't think so. Uh, Jesus saw that they were struggling, and in his compassion, he drew near to them. Jesus knew he didn't need to take any intervention, but that doesn't mean he wasn't going to be close to them. And of course, as he passes by, we see that this prompts a response from the disciples. Uh, Spotting Jesus in verse 26, we see that the disciples are terrified and cry out, it's a ghost. Now, some people, some people say, well, this shows that the disciples, they're actually really superstitious fishermen. Um, we don't see that any proof of that anywhere else at any point in the Gospels or in the rest of the New Testament. Uh, there's no proof for that in any extra biblical sources. Instead, I think that their response proves the unmistakable divinity that Christ was displaying at this point. It's not that Jesus 
was stepping on rocks, as some people like to claim. Like, they're like, oh, you know, it was actually, there are just these really convenient rocks that happen to be in the middle of a lake. And Jesus was just kind of skipping from rock to rock. No, no, no. And other people said, well, you know what? It was actually that there was a, a, a film of ice that was just strong enough to support his weight, and he just so happened to be walking across this ice. Uh, no. No. Verse 24 leaves, leaves no room for doubt. They were not somewhere near the shore. They were far from land being beaten by the waves. Yet out of this turmoil, they see someone just strolling along without any concern for the wind or the waves. Guys, I get freaked out at home lying in my nice warm bed because I hear a noise in the middle of the night. I don't think they're being superstitious. I think it was a proper response to go, that's weird. But Jesus sees their fears and tells them in verse 27, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. I love that. We know Jesus intended to pass them by, but when this scares them, Jesus' response is compassion. Don't be afraid. And then we see the amazing faith of Peter. Oh, one too much. Oh, uh, we see the amazing faith, faith, uh, faith of Peter. Oh, and you know what, Drew, I skipped over that one. That's why it doesn't make sense. Uh, that was, that was going to be the next thing. Not biology, cartography. It's not important. While everyone else is still scared, or maybe busy rowing, Peter asks to be commanded to come out and join Jesus on the water. And, and we know how this end, ends, right? How does it end? What happens to Peter? Yes. He sinks. He sinks. And he, he gets rebuked appropriately by Jesus, saying, You, oh, you of little faith. And that's, that's true. He, he did lack faith. But it has to be said that no one else in that boat was even willing to step out to him. Peter had an amazing faith in Jesus. And then we see that they come back to the boat. And we're told that three things immediately happen. Three, three amazing things. The first two is that immediately the wind stops and the waves stop as Jesus gets into the boat. And the third thing uh, that we see actually in John's account of this passage is that when Jesus enters the boat, they are immediately at their destination. Remember, they're, they're far, far away from land. But as soon as Jesus got in the boat with Peter, like that, they're in Bethsaida, Galilee. And notice in verse 33, what did the disciples do? Look at your Bible. It's right there. Someone else? Someone else? No, 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 no. Go for it, Kate. You didn't? Oh, I saw it right here. I, you got a Bible right there, though. What did the disciples do? Verse 33. What's their response to seeing? They worshiped him. They worshiped him. Exactly. Thank you. They worship. And notice that this time, Jesus doesn't make them leave. Nor does he rebuke them. 
And the reason for that is this time we see the disciples give proper, authentic worship to God. And this shows Jesus displaying his absolute authority of king over all creation. Thank you, Drew. Yeah, that's perfect. We see one final instance of Jesus' compassion and authority as king. In verse 34, we're told that they come to, man, these words, uh, Genesaret. And this would have been a region just south of Bethsaida of Galilee, where they arrived miraculously earlier that day. And we read in verse 34 that when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who are sick and implored him, implored Jesus, that they might only touch the fringe of his garment and as many as touched it were made well. Jesus displays his unending compassion in healing all those who are sick and displays his absolute authority as king over sickness. These glimpses into Christ's ministry, they always leave me just astounded. But when John writes that if every one of the things Christ did were to be written down in a book, he goes, I suppose the world can contain all of it. He's not being exaggeratory. He's not trying to be dramatic and drum up all the things Jesus did. Last week, Brandon talked about the fact that 5,000 people were fed, but do you remember why they came there first? What brought them there? What was it? His healing. His healing. The people were there desperate to be healed. And think for a second, do you think all of them stayed after they were healed? I don't think so. I think the, the scriptures clearly show that many times someone was healed and they just pieced right out. They left and they didn't show God the proper glory. And God, Jesus knew they were going to do that and he healed them anyway because that's, he's compassionate. So I want you to realize that 5,000 people were just the people left at the end of the day. Jesus spent all day healing thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And then here we see another instance where Jesus spends all day healing them to the point that he doesn't actually have to directly intervene, it appears. That just touching the fringe of his garment brought healing to people. My mind just, it can't even comprehend the amount of people that were healed from afflictions. Afflictions that to this day, we have no remedy for. People who had spent their whole life blind and crippled and suffering from all manners of birth defects, people who were sick and dying were healed because Emmanuel, God with us, came in compassion. And despite having authority over all things, Jesus emptied himself out, taking on the form of a servant. And being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Even death on what? Say it loud, Owen. On a cross. And he did it so that you and I, his enemies, in act of rebellion against him, could have peace with God if we just confess him as Lord. Now, I think most of us here tonight, I think this is a safe bet. I think most of us here tonight would probably identify as Christians. Uh, but have you ever really thought about this staggering authority Christ has over everything? And how absolute mind-boggling it is that he set aside those rights and those privileges so that he could be beaten and mocked by the people he had come to save. 
that he did it to redeem a sinner like me. A sinner who, honestly, I mean, if he hadn't sealed my salvation for me, I would surely lose it. But it's only because of his great compassion that he came, and it's only because of his great compassion that he sealed my salvation for me. And he did it because Jesus is king and has authority over my salvation as well. So here in this passage, we see these four instances of Jesus being compassionate and just demonstrating his authority as king. He showed that he has authority over how he is to be worshipped. He has authority over the circumstances we find ourselves in life. He has authority over creation itself. And he had authority over our sicknesses. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are a holy and righteous king. One who is not far from us. We thank you that you exercise your absolute authority over all your creation with compassion. That you are not a capricious or fickle God, but you, that you are steadfast, remaining the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lord, I pray that throughout this week we would be meditating on what it means that you have the right to exercise authority over our lives as God, and that we would be filled with joy, rejoicing at your will being played out in our lives. Father, we love you, and we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Matt.